You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. How are you doing? As I'm recording this, we're just about a month into the stay-at-home orders for the COVID-19 pandemic, and I think things are starting to feel more normal, at least they are for me, but sometimes it's exactly when you start to normalize that anxiety has an opportunity to show up. Sometimes it'll sneak up on you. And in the moments where things are really crazy, you'll actually feel fine because of what Coveri talks about in this episode, what happens in your brain, your survival mechanisms will kick in. So it's a little bit counterintuitive that it's later on after you're out of acute crisis that you might start feeling anxiety or some after effects of a traumatic experience. So whether you're deep into it or starting to feel more normal, this episode will help you understand what's going on in your brain when you experience anxiety and give you some tools to help you manage and reduce the feelings of anxiety. And also, if you're not experiencing anxiety yourself, this can help you be more understanding with your friends and your loved ones and possibly help you give your students some tools as well. My guest today, Christine Weber, is a leading world authority on the neuroscientific benefits of slow mindful movement and an advocate for the use of these practices as a solution to the healthcare crisis. Christine is both brilliant and compassionate, and I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So let's jump right in. Hello, hello. Welcome, everybody. I'm here with Christine Weber to talk about yoga tools for anxiety. Really relevant, timely topic because we all know that yoga does offer us some really helpful tools for dealing with anxiety, dealing with stress. And Christine has a lot of insight and information about the science of of why that is, and then some practical tips for you to use for yourself and also for you to help your students with. So Christine, I would love to start with what are your students, which I know your students are primarily yoga teachers. And mental health professionals, yeah. Okay, and mental health professionals. So what have they been saying to you lately and what have they been asking you for that inspired you to want to speak on this topic? Yeah, so um, I have been doing some some videos in my Facebook group. Um, I've been doing live streams. Well, last week I did four classes and this week I did two more and then, well, I'm doing another one tomorrow actually. But anyway, people are saying like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm saying like, what do you want? Like, what kind of classes do you want? And people are saying uh, anxiety, grounding, uh, stress, balance, um, mental health, uh, just dealing, coping, and then a lot of like neck and shoulder tension stuff. So I was really surprised when I put that out in my group that I just had this overwhelm. I think I had more than 60 comments and they were overwhelmingly asking me for these kind of grounding practices. So 
um, yeah, I think that's, and that's a, that would be a snapshot of what's going on out there, I think, right, in the rest of the world. I think there's this kind of realization that things are different. Uh, we're in this crazy, transformative period. Everybody knows that, but like, what do you do? Like, how do you deal with the energy? So, so I think it's really important. And I think yoga professionals are uniquely situated to help people address it. And we should be doing it, you know, online in our classes, however we're doing it through, you know, blogs, however we're reaching people. I think we can, we could, we can really make a huge impact in the culture. Yeah. And a minute ago, you were saying that you hadn't really been getting a lot of requests until just a few days ago about that. I think it's interesting because, so, so I think we had this big shock a couple of weeks ago when it was like, okay, well, at least in the United States, obviously that shock came months earlier in other parts of the world, but, but here we had this big shock and then people were just like, deal with the shock, you know, which is what you do when there's a trauma. I mean, make no, there's no doubt about it. This is a trauma, you know, or can be, it's a traumatic experience. And some people coast through traumas and some people it really uh, affects them deeply, you know, and particularly people with developmental and complex trauma, they're going to have a harder time dealing with this often because of the neurobiology of their nervous system, you know, the condition of their nervous system. So we've had this big shock trauma. And then, uh, you know, when you have a shock trauma, you just like run around and deal with it. So we saw all the people running around and shopping and getting toilet paper in Australia and whatever else. And then, uh, and now it's sort of like, oh, now we're in the period of what does this mean? And so this is when the anxiety starts to bubble up. And yeah, and I think we can, I, I think we can do a lot to help mitigate it. So do you think that that was part of, you know, the last couple of weeks, there has been this huge shift online for yoga teachers. And for those yoga teachers who really threw themselves into that, that was part, like kind of part of their way of processing the trauma of like taking action. But the, the coping mechanism of just taking action, taking action, taking action, it it's, I think it's limited in the amount of time that it will um, be helpful. Like eventually you still have to deal with the underlying emotions that are driving you to keep taking action. Right. The therapist would say you have to process it, right? <laughs> like eventually you have to process that stuff. But the taking action stuff is actually a really very important piece in the processing of trauma. So like when we had um, Katrina here several years ago, one of the things that happened was a lot of people were put on buses and shipped to Houston or like stuck in the, I forget the name of the big dome where they put people. And so the, the part of the trauma where you get to take action didn't happen. And without that taking action, you actually have, don't have as easy a chance of processing the trauma. You don't have as good a chance of processing it. So the, the taking action piece is really important. So if you as a yoga teacher got busy and started taking action and you know figuring out how you're going to do online stuff and ordering stuff from Amazon and getting your Zoom membership or whatever you did, like that's all an important part. And that's actually really good for your health. But as you say, then after that, you have to start processing. You have to start 
doing what you need to do to get through this phase. And by the way, we're still in the middle of the trauma, right? So whatever you need to do to, for self-care, because the taking action stuff essentially is just you're continuing to burn the, you know, you're, you're continuing to burn out the, the um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and it leads to that kind of adrenal fatigue. I've noticed a lot of memes on social media, right? This is one of the memes is you don't have to be productive during a pandemic, which I looked at that meme and I was like, well, you don't know me <laughs> because I had, if I were not being productive, I would feel, you know, like what would I be doing with myself? But, and, and I think that a lot of people are, are being productive in a really wonderful way. For example, the demand for gardening supplies and, and landscaping supplies is like really high. Um, I, if you go to any of the seed catalog websites, they're all like, due to unprecedented demand, <laughs> our shipping <laughs> will be slightly delayed. So, I mean, everybody's doing these home repairs that they've been meaning to do forever and getting their hands dirty in the garden which is, to me, incredibly, incredibly therapeutic. So anyway, I, I appreciate that you pointed out the benefit of taking action, because I think that that's important. And of course, if anybody does not want to take action, then that's an individual choice. But for me, when I saw that meme, I was like, um, yeah, I could go crazy. That would, that would be okay too, but <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather be productive. No. Yeah. I mean, me too. I, the minute it happened, I was like, okay, I'm making a new online course and it's called cultivating calm in times of crisis. And I got on it and I like pulled a couple of all nighters and put my eBooks together and made videos. And I did it in all like 10, like I've never made an online course in 10 days before. And I like, bang this baby out, you know, and it's like ready to go. And people are really liking it, which is great. Um, uh, just had, I've just had hundreds of people sign up for it, which has been really wonderful. And that was my way of processing the trauma. I knew exactly what it was, because I've studied trauma so much, so I knew exactly what I was doing. And I also knew I was going to need a time after that very productive period to really mellow out. So I've spent the past 10 days, like making sure I take long walks every day and, you know, doing lots of, this is such a wonderful time to do yoga online. I'm having the best time with teachers from all over the world doing classes. You know, it's been really wonderful. I think, don't you, don't you agree? Have you been? Able yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's such a treat, you know, all kinds of people who were not offering <sighs> yoga online, people from all over the world are now doing it. And, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I also find it amazing to walk the streets and have it be so quiet yeah. and to, you know, I, I know that not everybody has a, is safe at home and that's really sad. Um, but for those of us who are, there is this, thing, it, there is this going inward and it's a little bit odd for it to be happening in the first blush of spring when <laughs> kind of energetically we're all wanting to go outward. Um, and also, you know, uh, some people don't live with others. Like I have a family, we have a family of four living here. And for me as an introvert, this feels like plenty of human contact for me. I'm, <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> you know, but I, I want to acknowledge that people, there's vastly different situations. Yeah. Um, but 
for me personally, there's a lot of beauty and a sense of renewal and, um, and possibility even happening right now. Um, and knowing that that's not everybody's experience and that many people are experiencing trauma, let's talk about what is going on physically in the body when we experience anxiety. Um, so, yeah, so I, I could, I think the basic mechanism to understand is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, HPA axis, it's called. And um, so what happens is the hypothalamus, um, in its interaction with other brain regions, including parts of your brainstem, the, particularly the superior colliculi, and then also parts of the limbic system, particularly the amygdala and the hippocampus. So they are, um, and, you know, there's, there's, numerous net, there's numerous brain regions that create a network that say, some kind of threat, some kind of fear, you know, there's, some, there's something threatening. And that stimulates the hypothalamus to sort of yell at the uh, pituitary gland and say, hey, there's some kind of threat out there. And the pituitary gland um, is often called the master gland because it kind of, um, it is involved in all of the hormonal functions in the whole system. So the pituitary gland sends messengers to the adrenaline glands, which then send, send out messengers into the system that say threat. So I'll just um, talk about these two parts of the system. There's this, this fast system that shoots out adrenaline and that's the take action system, right? So that's the like get up and go. And that's when you, the, you know, the saber tooth tiger is attacking and you run away. That's the, that fight or flight system. So um, that system is pretty quick and it actually resolves pretty quickly. But there's also another piece of that interrelated piece of that system, the slower system, which is the cortisol system. So that sending out cortisol, like I was, <laughs> cortisol helps you, cortisol is great, you know, because it helps you to um, keep moving forward even in the face of adversity. But cortisol that continues to stay in the system for long periods of time and doesn't get resolved, then you end up having, it takes eight to 12 hours. So then you end up having this cortisol in your system and it just keeps signaling your brain to say, you know, make, keep the system going. There's more of uh, stressors or threats here. And then you just have this over dump of cortisol in the system and that in the long term, it's bad. In the short term, it's good. I was watching Brad Pitt fight in a movie. I think it was called Troy or something. So I don't know. It just like came, you know, we've been watching a lot of movies. So he's like, in this movie is like fighting the bad guy, the gladiators, and he's all buff and he gets like sliced on his arm by the sword, but he doesn't even look at it. You know, he's got this like gash and the blood's coming down and he's like, well, I'm fighting. That's cortisol that's doing that too. Like you don't even notice the pain. So, you know, in our regular lives, we don't even notice our stress levels because the cortisol is so high and we're sort of just like plugging away and we're going to do more gardening or do more whatever, make more yoga classes, yoga courses or whatever. And, uh, and meanwhile, the cortisol is pumping away. And in the long term, it has these long term detrimental effects on the system. Uh, essentially everything. It lowers your immunity. It's, it creates metabolic sy syndrome where, you know, that's a, this sort of perfect storm of high blood pressure and, and, um, 
blood sugar issues and cholesterol, everything all together, and it, it is very unhealthy. And it can lead to chronic diseases, essentially. So that's why we know that at the root of all chronic diseases is this um, is the stress response and being able to get the stress response to a much more manageable level, by the way, how do you do that? Well, you practice, you know, it's, you have to do it every day to get the, the stress response down. And that's what actually is going to help people to manage the long-term effects of this. So one of the things we know, uh, by the way, so, so I'm kind of talking about the stress response, but that's anxiety, right? Essentially, it's an overabundance of this stuff. And by the way, what we know in terms of the research is that depression is on this is comes about because of the same system, because of too much what's called allostatic load. Like you're just weighing the earth. The earth is weighing all the the you know the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Um, too much allostatic load over too much time. Eventually, people dump into depression. So anxiety and depression are very, very much the opposite sides of the same coin. And many people have both of them too. So that's kind of like a little brief. Is that kind of clear? So basically we're perceiving a threat mm -hmm. and then the cascade of reactions happens in the brain to cause adrenaline and cortisol to be released into our bodies, mm -hmm. which are what inspire us to take action and and kind of allow us to be buffered from whatever the the greater emotional impact is right so physiologic impact as well yeah mm, mm, okay okay yeah so then you know then our as yogis our response is we need to practice our management of our own nervous system. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I think that, you know, in my work with mental health professionals, what I'm starting to understand is that it's, you know, you said as yogis, we need to practice, but I feel like it really can be applicable to just about any population that's dealing with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. As long as you're thinking about the practices that can be accessible, right? So if the practices are accessible, then really even people who don't practice yoga can start using these practices in a way that, you know, you don't even have to call it yoga, call it like mindfulness plus mindful movement or something if people are too freaked out by yoga. But I think that these practices or breathing practices, you know, they're so applicable to the whole population right now. We have such an opportunity as yoga teachers at this moment to be reaching wider swaths of the population with these teachings. If we're willing to be accessible, you know, and we're willing to be non-sectarian about it, you know, and we're willing to bring some of the science into it. I, I think like kind of the next step might be because all the healthcare professionals are, there's 8 million healthcare professionals in this country and they are all in the shock trauma phase right now. They're all experienced vicar vicarious trauma. Um, or many, I should say, you know, and so we're in this phase right now as yoga teachers, we could be really reaching them in the next state to help them from going into burnout, you know, to help keep, to help build their resilience, to help them to um, continue to thrive in the face of what we're dealing with right now. Um, so I think it's so important for yoga teachers not to think of yourselves as people who just help, you know, 
people who like yoga with their hobby or whatever, <laughs> but to think of ourselves as public health professionals, because really that's what we are, you know, and what we can be. We can really use this as an opportunity to make yoga a lot more available to more people, particularly the online stuff. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really great point because one of the things I've been hearing people saying or asking about is, okay, if this really, you know, if this keeps going, how do I reach more people? Because yeah, some of my students are willing to take classes online, but can I meet more people and help more people online? Yes, and I think the answer is absolutely yes, you can. And yes, you're going to start with your personal network. There are so many people in your personal network already who don't practice yoga, have never practiced yoga, and could benefit from some of the tools that you have to offer. Absolutely. And if you learn how to talk about what you're doing in a way that targets what they are worried about or concerned about and need in that moment, you know, you have to be able to use the language that they can connect to. So you can't you won't necessarily be able to use the language that you would use in your yoga classes, the language that you learned in your teacher training. You have to be able to translate to language that people understand. Oh, Mado, you and I have so much in common. <laughs> I totally resonate with everything you just said. And it's so vital for yoga teachers to hear that message. It's so vital. Because, yeah, you have all these people in your personal network, and you have all the people in the personal networks of your favorite students, of your, mm -hmm. you know, the students who love you the most. All those people, those students are your biggest potential cheerleaders, you know, to get out there and share this stuff with other people. I can't tell you how many of my students since this has happened have been dragging their children and husbands to my classes. Mm, <laughs> that's awesome. Right? Yeah. 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 And, and if anybody watching this is like, okay, great. You're telling me I need to translate. You're telling me I need to use their language, but how do I do that? That is coincidentally exactly what this pod or tomorrow, my podcast episode tomorrow coming out tomorrow is all about that. Yeah. Now the title is why your marketing isn't working and how to fix it. Um, but this is exactly what I'm going to talk about. Why your marketing isn't working is that you're not using the right words. You're not using the right words because they're not landing with your people. That's all that marketing is, yeah. is words that the people you're trying to reach resonate with. That's it. That's, that's marketing right there. So, <laughs> so, so if you want to, if you want to hear more about the how to do that, uh, check out the yoga teacher resource podcast tomorrow. I think it'll come out at like 5am. So it doesn't really matter how early you get up. I mean, I guess if you get up at four, then it won't be ready for you, but it'll be ready tomorrow, Thursday, which is April 2nd. Yeah. And, and, um, a couple of months ago, I released a course called connect to healthcare kit, the subtle yoga connect to healthcare kit, because if for exactly this reason, I wanted People, I wanted yoga teachers to be able to have the language that you need. I mean, I actually have scripts in there of how to talk to healthcare professionals because like, I want yoga teachers to understand exactly what you're saying. It's all about the language. You get the language right and you meet people where they are and then they're going to go, oh my God, this yoga stuff is not just some pretzely thing for 
you know, beautiful, skinny, something, some 20 somethings on Instagram. This is actually something that could really be helping my patients, my cl clients. If you're working with mental health people, uh, that's mostly who I work with, but I work with lots of other healthcare professionals too. And they, they, they love it when they realize they can, you know, understand it. And then you're the person who can speak to their patients and then they can send their patients to you. I mean, there's a ton of potential for referral this way and recommendation this way. If you're willing to speak their language, it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. So, so, you know, I, I hope that yoga teachers are not falling into a pit of despair right. about, <laughs> about the potential to help people Right. Whether we're online or in person, we can help people. And, you know, I, I think both you and I, Kaveri, are not necessarily like the first people who would have jumped into online teaching <laughs> as our preference, right? This is, you know, I, I, we both have been focused on this actually for a few years, yeah. but it wasn't because of some kind of love of the on online format. It's like, this is the way of the future. It, it, it's been very clear. Um, now, nobody has to teach online, but if you are willing to teach online, you really can help people on a very, very profound level, even through the internet, which is such an amazing thing. It's, yeah. I mean, can you imagine if this pandemic had happened even 20 years ago? Like how much more isolated we would all be? Mm hmm yeah, it's true. We have this. I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, it's both of those things, just like everything. You know, there's positive aspects and there's aspects that are not so positive, but I like to focus on the positive aspects of it. And um, I did, it was a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, it's time to wake up and smell the 21st century here because if you don't get online, you're missing the boat, you know. So that's why I did it. Like I have no natural sort of capacity to be in front of the camera, you know, or interest really. I just, I worked it and I, I sp I've spent a lot of time sitting here talking to my computer and doing yoga postures in front of my phone. And, and I've, you know, I've had a lot of, I've done a lot of professional video recording in the past couple of years too. And it's been a great learning curve to be like, okay, but the, the benefits are that now I have students all over the world and um, I've been able to reach so many more people. And I, it's just, it, I feel so grateful for this medium, you know, and this capacity to reach people. So it's, it's, it's a blessing and yeah. And there's some downsides to it too, for sure. But that doesn't mean you, I want to go back to just being an in-person teacher because I, you know, I was doing okay teaching in person for years and years. I mean, I've been teaching for 20, almost 25 years, 24 years. Is that right? Yeah. I've been teaching for 24 years. So, you know, I mean, I, and it, it's been great. I, I have no, I have no regrets. But to be able to reach people in other parts of the world is really gratifying. It's really special for sure. And I think you know one of the things that yoga teachers are seeing is that their students who've moved away, or if they've moved, they're able to reconnect with students that they had in the past, yeah. and that I think is really sweet and special. And it it kind of shows you a little bit of the potential of what could be um, by continuing to pursue this path if you wish to. Yeah, yeah, that's great. To to um, to refocus us <laughs> on the topic at hand, <laughs> which is it's totally fine. 
No, it's totally, it's totally great to, uh, to, to get a little sidetracked. Um, but, but to, to make sure that we are able to get, you know, all the information in, I know that, um, you know, as it might not be super obvious what to look for with our students and maybe even our loved ones when they're experiencing anxiety. Mm -hmm. So would you talk about that a little bit about what should we be paying attention to? Yeah. What it looks like in our students, what it looks like. Yeah. It looks like maybe in ourselves too. In ourselves. First of all, <laughs> it looks, it looks different for everybody, right? So some people with anxiety are going to look like what you think, you know, like, yeah, you know, whatever. Um, and some people with anxiety are going to be sleeping you know, or maybe not sleeping, but lying in bed. Uh, and we're really withdrawn. So it does look different for different people. Um, and the other piece to this is that, you know, it, this goes back to what we we're just talking about with online, um, the distractibility and the feeling of jumping from one thing to another, which is a really, you know, common sort of thing that happens when you're spending a lot of time on the internet. That's tricky. So you want, you do want to give the messages of like, I want to help you with your anxiety and please put away your other distractions, turn off your cell phone and just be present with me here right now for your own benefit. Not because I want you to be here for me. It's for you. So you can, and, and move your mat a little bit away. I got my mat over there in the corner. Move your mat away from the, the uh, screen a bit and, and please, um, validate yourself and some gratitude to yourself for taking this time for self-care. And at this very critical time in history, self-care is an ethical imperative. It's an ethical imperative. So we can think about our yamas and niyamas, you know, non-harming, of course, is a piece of it. Shocha, which is that idea of staying clean and clear. Shocha is a piece of you doing your practice. Certainly, I mean, you could you can look at tapas, of course, as part of your practice too. Um, but you can look at the yamas and niyamas and uh, our, the yoga ethics and say, my practice is, uh, is imperative right now. And it's imperative for my mental health. It's imperative for my physical health. It's imperative for my mental health. So how do I kind of leave some of those distractions behind and really focus on what I'm doing? So you can give those messages to your students right now, like, it's so easy to go off and do this or that, or think you have to clean the toilet instead of Shavasana, but you know, do, do your Shavasana, please do your Shavasana. You owe it to yourself and please do your self-care because if you're doing your self-care, then you can show up better for your family. You can show up better for your students. You know, you can show up better for whoever, for your work. Uh, self-care is an imperative at this time. It's so important. And yoga is, you know, yoga is the, kind of perfect self-care tool. So, so yeah, so you're going to see different things with different people, but, um, you know, let people, let people know that there may, they may be experiencing anxiety and, or they may be experiencing depression or some of those stages of grief. Um, because it is a grieving time for a lot of people. People are losing not only you know, their lifestyle, they're losing people, they're losing friends and family. So, um, so this, this, uh, we're going to see these symptoms in many different ways. However, they manifest for you. I want you to come and practice with me. That's what's important. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say are 
the most important tools from yoga for managing anxiety? So um, I think they're all important. And so, you know, I was uh, the sort of thing that you see all the time, uh, whether it's on the cover of Yoga Journal or, you know, whatever website is like, okay, here's three poses for anxiety, or here's four poses for depression. And that's just really unfortunate and reductive. And it's reductive because that's the way our Western minds work. So, you know, you kind of have to fight against that, uh, that reductive tendency and reductionist tendency. And then remember that yoga is a system and we have four major process tools in that system, according to the Kripala Research Institute's uh, consortium um, study uh, of, of how yoga benefits psychological well-being. And according to that study, they say four process tools, which I think is a great way to think about yoga. So the first process tool is ethics. How do we operationalize our ethics? When we operationalize the yamas and niyamas, they are a tool for mental health and well-being. And the most important of those tools, I would suggest, is brahmacharya. And I don't mean it in the sense of continence. I mean it more in the tantric definition of brahmacharya, which is uh, walking while chewing on or while driving with Brahma. Right, so you walk while you're driving with Brahma means sort of that God is my co-pilot bumper sticker. That's really what brahmacharya means when you break it down etymologically. So brahmacharya is a practice of deep remembering. It's remembering every step I take throughout my day, every moment I have throughout my day is an opportunity to remember my higher power, my source, the divine, however you want to phrase that. Uh, if you are an atheist, to remember my interconnectedness, my interdependency with, of all beings. Brahmacharya gives us the, is, is such a powerful yoga tool. You can use it all day long, even when you're not doing yoga, you know, not doing asanas. So, so let's not forget that ethics are a hugely important um, piece. Operationalizing those ethics is a hugely important piece in the management uh, and the reduction of anxiety. Uh, so, so yamas and niyamas, um, I would say the other, brahmacharya is the most important yama, and then ishvara pranidhana is the most important niyama. Ishvara pranidhana means to, to take shelter in something greater than yourself. So ishvara pranidhana gives us that opportunity to remember our spirituality, to remember that there's a cause for everything in the universe, and that, um, uh, you know, following that causal flow takes us to some kind of a deeper understanding of ourselves, our lives, our place in the world. So those two concepts, I think, are critical in uh, reducing anxiety in terms of the uh, ethical principles of yoga, right? So the four process tools, again, ethics are the first one, the second are asanas, third are pranayama, and fourth are meditation. So we usually think about asanas, pranayama, and maybe secondarily pranayama and meditation. Asana-wise, there's lots of great asanas, and anything that helps you to um, uh, reduce the uh, activation of the sympathetic part of the nervous system. So in yoga philosophy, we talk about brahmana and langana, uh, particularly in the uh, yoga chikitsa part of the yoga therapy part of um, yoga. So, so brahmana means kind of energizing, langana means kind of reducing. So the langana asanas are going to be twists and forward bends. That doesn't mean don't do, do a whole practice of twists and forward bends, but emphasizing those a little bit in your practice is going to be really useful. 
And then also langana are things that you're doing closer to the ground. So lying on your back, lying on your stomach. So twists, lying on your back and forward bends, lying on your back. Um, and then, uh, you know, tabletop to uh, child's pose, chakravak asana or sunbird, those sorts of things are going to be useful. And then what we know with, in terms of the breath, things that are more langana are things that emphasize your exhale. So lengthening your exhale, progressively lengthening your exhale in asanas, in pranayama, is going to lend itself more towards that langana effect and help to reduce anxiety. This is really like, you know, a, a, a whole 200 hour teacher training in five minutes I'm giving you here, but, <laughs> but that's kind of the, you know, the basis of it. And then the, uh, and then meditation practices. So what are the grounding meditation practices that, that we can use? You know, there's so many, the yoga tradition is just full of so many meditation practices, but I would suggest mantras that help you feel grounded and relaxed. Um, and, uh, visualizations and, um, uh, yeah, different visualization practices you can use in meditation that help the energy to feel like it's spiraling down into the earth, connecting to the earth, feeling like you're connecting to the same stuff that the earth is made of can be really grounding and, and uh, have a, a lovely uh, benefit as well. So that's kind of like my little nutshell yoga practices for anxiety. How about like a body scan? How about a what? A body scan. A body scan. Yeah, I mean, I think body scans are always amazing for most people. Um, and you could, uh, one thing that I think is nice is to start your body scan from your head and go down to your feet to, to be the grounding rather than from your feet up. I like both, you know, you can play with both. And the other thing that I love to do with body scans that I think is so helpful neurobiologically is bouncing from one side to the other. So relax your right eye, relax your left eye, relax your right ear, relax, relax your left ear, relax your right shoulder, relax your left shoulder, or however you phrase that. Some people don't like to use relax or ground mm -hmm. or heavy or whatever. Um, but bouncing back and forth, it's a bilateral stimulation. You can also allow the eyes to move back and forth as you're doing that with the eyes closed. That bilateral stimulation can be very processing for trauma and uh, anxious feelings, right? So you use the somatic uh, awareness of the body plus the bilateral stimulation, and it can have a very powerful relaxing effect on the system and integrating effect also. So those are things that I would suggest for body scan. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah, I think there, I, I feel like there's so many practices like yoga nidra, legs getting your legs up some kind of inversion great for the immune system too but so good for anxiety um but sometimes it takes a while to get there you know you can't just jump into legs up the wall necessarily when you're feeling like cleaning the garage <laughs> right and i think that's an important note is that you know it it may not also work just to start with meditation or pranayama either if you have a lot of anxious energy, you may need to get it out through movement first before you are able to sit and ground. That's so such an important valid point. Like I think that's why a lot of people are having trouble feeling like they can show up for a yoga class. Like, oh, I can't, I'm too anxious to even do yoga. So one of the things I love to use at the beginning of my practice with anxiety is rebounding. And I do lots of different variations of rebounding. So rebounding just means like bouncing around. 
but you can bounce around in many, many different ways um, and shaking things off too, um, because that does have a, a very kind of sedating effect on the nervous system. Uh, it kind of burns off the burns off the stress hormones. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost like you give your body permission to physicalize the anxiety yeah. and that actually allows it to release it. Yeah, that's a great way I to do it. think that so many times we push away feelings that are uncomfortable and we actually make them bigger and stronger by pushing them away. And as uncomfortable as it is to actually feel our feelings, it's, in, it's incredibly freeing and it actually frees us from those feelings. Mm -hmm. We both have teenage teenagers <laughs> and I've been observing this in my teenager. You know, she's very much like me. So she has some struggles with anxiety. She definitely experiences anxiety, but doesn't have a lot of words to describe it. It's not something that she came up with, right? It reminds me of myself because at that age, I definitely had anxiety that I, you know, was probably like in my thirties before I was like, oh, that was anxiety. You know, like I didn't, I did not see a counselor or a psychiatrist or anything as a younger person. And so I was never given the language or the tools to understand my own psychological experience. She is actually taking psychology in college right now. So she took general psychology. Now she's taking developmental psychology. She, she might end up um, majoring in it. What I've been observing is that, so she's resistant to talking about her feelings. She does not like doing it. But when she is placed in a situation where, let's say counseling, sometimes I go to counseling with her. And so she spends an hour talking about her feelings. At the end, I'm like getting a little emotional talking about this because it's really profound. It's like, she'll be very, she'll be incredibly resistant about it. But at the end of an hour of talking about her feelings, she's so much lighter. And it's so clear to me from the outside, like, wow, that really worked, you know, that, and, and it wasn't fun. It wasn't like her, it wasn't even really her choice. Like she didn't really want to do it, but she engaged with it enough for it to work, you know? And, um, I, I guess one of the things that I would say to anybody listening is if you're pushing away your anxiety, then you're making it stronger. And, and it's such an important point. It's such an important point. And what I see happening, what I have seen in the past happen is that a lot of people use yoga to spiritually bypass their feelings. And then you end up having some really messy, nasty relationship issues, typically in yoga studios, you know, and dysfunctional relationships because you're not going into the heart of the fire. You, you have to step into the ring of fire to get through it. You, you can't go around it. You know, you have to, this is the whole subtle body. Like you have to progress through the challenges. You can't go around them. And the last thing we want to do as yoga professionals is to, um, you know, not deal with our own heaviness, our own stuff, if it's anxiety or whatever, trauma stuff, re trauma residue, whatever it is, and then be teaching in a way that is not healthy for our students, you know, and that stuff is coming out in our teaching because we use the teaching as a vehicle to process our own 
intrinsic, unprocessed, unconscious, emotional stuff. And, you know, I've been in the yoga world for a long time. And a lot of the scandals that you see come up are exactly that pattern. You know, that is not something that we need to continue. We need to remove those veils. We need to forget about thinking that we're perfect just because we're teaching yoga, because that's ridiculous. And we need to use the tools that we have what, yeah, use your yoga practices, but please go see a psychotherapist, you know, and please start processing this stuff and don't create a situation where your students are the victims of your unprocessed emotional stuff, baggage. That is, that's the greatest, you know, error that I see happening, that I have seen happen in the yoga world. And, and it shouldn't be, you know, there's no reason for this. We've got the practices, we have psychotherapy, we need to take responsibility for our emotional baggage and do something with it and not let it play out in weird dysfunctional ways in the yoga classroom. You know, and, and I think that's an important message that needs to get out there a little more strongly in the yoga community, frankly. Yeah. So it seems like practicing asana can be, have like an analgesic effect. So it reduces our suffering a little bit. I bet, which is wonderful, but I think it, I think the idea is that it can't stop there. We can't just say, oh, practicing yoga makes me feel good, and so I'm just going to practice yoga every time I start to feel not so good. That instead of using the asana practice and even the meditation practice as a way to just blunt the pain, that we use it to fortify ourselves yeah. so that we are able to handle the discomfort of actually feeling the deeper, darker, murkier things that are essential for us to process or to move through us, to allow to move through us. Because I think that just dampening down the pain, it doesn't get rid of the pain. Yeah. That's, you put it, it has to be felt. Yeah. It's beautiful. And that's a really beautiful way to put it. And I have had students say to me, I think I was using my yoga practice to avoid my emotional stuff. And I'm like, yeah, lots of people do, you know, you know, it's, I, I think it's, I don't think it's uncommon. And, and I think we can, we can do, you know, just exactly what you're saying. We can use yoga to feel better and then also to tolerate. So yeah, that's, this is why yoga is so powerful for building resilience. You know, it, it helps people to be able to exactly what you're saying, to be able to have the fortitude to, to move, move through things, you know? Yeah. So I think that, that what we need to do is to hook up with a psychotherapist at least temporarily, because you don't actually know what's underneath until you start digging into it. And I think that there is, you know, like there is a little bit of a I don't want to say a danger exactly, but there are risks involved with, with exploring this stuff. And it's a good idea to do at least some with a professional so that you can be evaluated. So the professional may, may, you know, especially if you have an ethical professional, you start with them and you say, Hey, I just want to have a few sessions. I want to start doing this work and I want to make sure that I'm doing it in a safe space. Yep. And, you know, they may say, okay, great. And then after a few sessions, they may say, okay, we can meet again in a few months, but like, here's the work to keep doing. And then we don't, you know, it doesn't have to be super expensive. 
as a blanket statement, since we're, you know, we're recording this and we're putting it out there, I don't want to encourage people to like, who have complex trauma in their past and maybe don't even realize it to start digging in without professional assistance. So if you think that there may be more than you're allowing yourself to experience, just, just get started with a professional and do a few sessions and see how it goes and see if it works for you and see if you need to continue with a professional or if you can, you know, maybe just see a professional very occasionally. Sure. And I would give a shout out to both EMDR and brain spotting. If you're looking at, if you're, if you're looking to, you know, process trauma, uh, those are the two most powerful uh, tools in my opinion. Uh, EMDR is the one, uh, and then brain spotting, which is kind of an evolution of EMDR. Those are powerful techniques that can, and if you get a therapist who knows how to do them, one of the reasons they're so powerful is because they're bottom-up brainstem techniques. So they're not just working with cognitive stuff. It's great to work with cognitive stuff too, the cognitive behavioral therapies or other kind of cognitive uh, behavior, uh, cognitive um, therapy approaches, but um, I think working with bottom up is also very important, which means that you're working with through the body essentially. Yeah. Stuff. So it's really important what you're saying, Mado. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, it's important to remember that yoga can work hand in hand with mental health professionals and can really supplement what they're doing in a huge way because no one person is going to be the pan you know no one technique or one person is going to be a panacea for anybody even that's right um but yoga is an incredibly complementary discipline that can help promote healing can help uh let's say amplify the healing potential of some of the other things yeah. that you might be doing yeah that that was my experience i mean i got into yoga because of my own anxiety and depression when i was a teenager and you know, I would say that I've managed it, <clears throat> managed my anxiety and depression, but also I've um, built a lot of resilience with yoga, you know, so that I can handle other things that are coming maybe a little better than I could when I was younger. So, you know, and I think that maybe that happens just when you get older anyway, but uh, certainly the yoga practice has been really, really instrumental for me in maintaining some mental health balance. That's why I got into mental health you know, because that's how I started using yoga. So I got into it from, and I wanted to start working with health, mental health professionals because of the effect that it had on me, you know, personally. So I agree. I mean, I think that the, the self-awareness of how your brain works that is offered through kind of the yogic lens mm-hmm. is not unique and I mean I, I wouldn't say it's unique. I know that that there are other ways of entering that world. Um, but to my knowledge, it's the most popular discipline <laughs> that that offers this. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody knows what yoga is. Unfortunately, not everybody recognizes that that the primary or one of the primary tools of yoga is to observe and manage the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, once you're introduced to something, then 
especially if you resonate with it or attracted to it, then you become curious and you become open to learning about more angles of it. Yeah. So um, that's definitely been incredibly powerful. And I, I personally, we were talking about language earlier. This is something that I'm constantly learning and refining how to talk about what yoga is from a more essential place. You know, how, how do we share with the people that we meet on the street? What is powerful about yoga in a, in a way that they can recognize the necessity of it, the importance of it, and also recognize the, like their themselves in the potential of it where they can say, Oh yeah, that's something I could do. And it's something I'd like to do. Yeah. And different people need to hear different messages. You know, so true. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on who you're talking to for sure. But I love what you said about like, how can I help you? You know, what's your, what's your issue and how can I help you with that? <laughs> Cause that's, that's really what we need to ask as yoga teachers. How can I help you? Yeah. 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 That's really important. And, and that is something that I think is overlooked easily when we are trained in a system. And so we have this system where like, I would like to help you with this system (laughs) that I've been trained in (laughs) instead of just really listening to people. What do you need? What do you need right now? Mm -hmm. And trusting that we actually have the capacity to help, whether it's within the system that we were originally trained in or, or not. Yeah. Well, or whether it requires us to be kind of creative and and to branch out. And I think the original systems, as long as you're trained in something that's remote, you know, relatively authentic, um, that I think the or those original systems provide us a litmus test. And we can go, oh, I want to explore that. And I want to look at that and then start adding things to your toolbox. I think that's a really important way of working as a yoga teacher, you have some kind of litmus test to look at other things from. Um, and I think this is particularly important in light of some of the, some of the challenges that are going on in the yoga world and how some certain systems are getting um, dismantled, uh, you know, either biomechanically or just in terms of the authenticity of them is to go, what, what, how do I go back to something that feels really solid? And there's something about the original practices, you know, the practices I learned in Indi- when I was in India, and then the practices I studied with my Vinny yoga teachers, like Gary Craftso and other folks, um, they're so similar, you know, at, at, like I learned from people in, in Bengal, and then I learned from people in, up in the Himalayas, and, and then South India, but the stuff that's similar, that's the stuff that's timeless. And I think it involves slow mindful movement, lots of repetition before you stay in poses. It involves uh, an attention to the breath and some pranayama practices, meditation and, and ethics, essentially the process tools. And, and when you get that sort of, when you have that sort of like, um, uh, you know, you have sort of a system to it and you feel like there's something solid about it, then you can branch out and look at like, oh, what's this aerial yoga about? Or what's this yin yoga about? Or what's it? And like, then you start bringing them into what you're teaching. And that's really how you have beautiful create creativity as a yoga teacher. And you feel inspired by what you're teaching and what you're practicing. And the fact that you never get to stop learning. I mean, it's so exciting 
when you think about it, you know, it never ends. You know? <laughs> like there's gonna, there's so much more to learn. And I feel like I've only scratched the surface of what I'm going to be learning in the rest of my life. You know, it's really inspiring, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. Like I love, I love learning from different systems, not only different systems of yoga, but different systems of everything and seeing what is the essence of what these different systems are teaching? I'm not talking about even movement systems. I'm talking about like science and mm. philosophy and like when we can start to see the essence of what each person is teaching and how there's connections, mm -hmm. that's to me how we create a more 3D model yeah. of reality. And so I like to look at things from different angles and to be able to see like, oh, I can see this nuance. I can, you know, you don't, to me, and, and I know, I know there's lots of people who love having one tradition, one system that they really go deep in. And I think that's really cool, but no matter what, every system has its blind spots and you're, you're kind of saying, I'm okay with that by sticking to just one tradition. Mm -hmm. And if it works for you, then I'm happy for you to do that. But I get really excited about like seeing something from an angle I've never seen it from before. Like the same thing. Right. <laughs> and seeing the connections, you know, yeah. Gregory Bateson, who was one of the founders of system theory and he was married to Margaret Mead. He talks about what is the pattern that connects? Like to me, that's like the ultimate question. You know, what is the pattern that connects everything? I love Qigong so much and I love bringing it into my yoga and I love how it, I can find Qigong stuff in my yoga, you know, mm. like it's so fascinating to find those connections. So to me, that's really what yoga is about is connecting, whether it's connecting systems, whether it's connecting with myself, whether it's connecting with my higher power, connecting in my relationships, connecting with my students, yoga is about connections and it's about finding the connections and being open to the fact that there are connections and, and uh, letting go of this very human tendency to want to make everything discrete and keep everything mm -hmm. separated. You know, when we bring things right, together, we start there, <laughs> start there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's been awesome. I know that we could just keep talking for another, it's like, fun. we don't talk enough hours. <laughs> it's we true. We'll just have to do it again. We don't see each other enough. <laughs> well, these days, nobody's seeing each other. <laughs> we can go to Zoom walk. That's a, that's or not a Zoom walk, like a phone walk, you know, <laughs> walk and chat. That's I have a headset. I just bought, here's a good tip for your listeners. I just got these. Oh my goodness. They changed my life. They're both, what are they? Bose Sound Sport, I think. And they just amplify, you can use them when you're making videos. They just kind of amplify your audio from your phone. They're really good. They're, you're, they're headphones, but they have a little speaker mic. thing, a mic thing. And they're not great. Like they're not as good as my um, really high tech stuff that I use for professional videos, but for my phone, they're perfect. Awesome. Well, we can, um, maybe we can put a link there and if, People watching want to find out more about you, want to take your course, how can they find you? So subtleyoga.com is my website. I also have Subtle Yoga with Christine Weber on Facebook. And if you want, you can join my group, which is Subtle Yoga Community Group. And there's just a lot of discussion. It's all people that are kind of interested in my teachings that are on there. 
So any of those ways are good ways to reach me. And I gave you some links to uh, some of my free stuff. I have a free class on YouTube. I have two free eBooks. One's called The Five Secrets All Yoga Teachers Need to Know. It's about the neurobiologic benefits of slow mindful movement. And the other one is called Weather the Storm, which is the thing I did last week. Um, Subtle yoga for creating resilience uh, in difficult times or something like that. So it's called Weather the Storm. So I gave you three links and that's all free stuff if people are interested. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and share your insights and your perspective today. And we'll definitely figure out a way to do it again. Thanks for having me, Mandel. That was such a fun and engaging conversation. The original inspiration for this podcast came from my real-time conversations with other yoga teachers and wanting to share those with a wider audience. Ever since the podcast started, listeners have been asking me if there is some small way to participate in the podcast and support it. So I am incredibly excited to announce the opportunity to become a patron of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to extra episodes, trainings, and resources, while also knowing that you're contributing to making this resource available to other yoga teachers for the long term. If you would like to be a founding patron and get a personalized shout out on the podcast, I would be so excited to have you. Go to teachingyoga.net slash patron to find out more. That's teachingyoga.net slash p-a-t-r-o-n patron. And a special thank you to everyone who has requested this opportunity and to all of you who have reached out, whether by email or messenger or on a Facebook post to say thank you, because it really means a lot to hear back from you as a listener that the content I'm providing on this podcast is making a difference in your life. As always, I want to close out by reminding you to make time for self-care, to make that a priority and to find some way to set aside a little time and a little space for your personal practice. 